appreciate your praying. Or praying. Well, we appreciate that too. That you're playing every week. <laughs> I want you to know that we don't take you for granted. And uh, glad to have you here. I don't take Bob for granted either. I'm glad he's here. Uh, I enjoy singing with him. He's a lot of fun, and uh, we have a good time together. Well, I appreciate all the guests that are here this morning, and we're glad to have you here. We have several that aren't here, but we have several visitors, and we're thankful that you chose to worship with us this morning. We have some folks that traveled all the way up here from Milledgeville, Georgia. If anybody knows where that is, I've actually been there once. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful to have there. Um, actually, Bo, would you introduce them to us, please? <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's my kind of guy right there. Ben Bell. Yeah, uh-huh. Charlie? Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we heard you just, yeah, she's mentioned that she just graduated from East Ridge High School and just came right back home here from Atlanta, so that's great. Glad to have you back here, Miss Greenwood. Appreciate that. Yeah, I met them. Yeah. They look like they're from Florida, don't they? That black, green, pastel colored on. And, but we got another guy here from Florida, too. Oh, I thought you were talking about these two over here. They, they practically live in Florida, you know. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Mark Wilson, that's uh, Walt's nephew, and of all places, man, he lives down in Florida, right near Destin in Niceville. Oh, me. Don't we feel so sorry for him, huh? <laughs> Yes, well, we're glad to have you here and appreciate everyone coming out and taking this opportunity to worship in a assembled manner. You know, we've presented a series on the church and the ecclesia some time back, and that is the purpose of, that's what the word ecclesia means, the, an assembly of people. And for the church, it means an assembly of those who of like-minded faith who have determined to unite themselves together in a place of worship. And I like to think of ourselves as that, that you know, everyone here understands just what page we're on biblically. And so we know where we're at, we know why we're here to worship, and we know what the Word of God says. And so we will, we're going to pray, proceed from there. I guess I should have mentioned... Uh, Brother Jerry mentioned or had Bo announce that Aiden's here. Uh, he is back in the nursery. Of course, I guess most of you saw him. He had to leave because he just was getting a little restless, I guess. He didn't want to sing along with everybody or whatever. Or he had to do his own song. But you'll get used to that. <laughs> It'll come later. All right. Let's turn this morning to Second Timothy. Well, Phil, when, when the service is over, I'm going to have you come up for just three or four minutes or something and dismiss us in prayer, and but give us a little testimony and tell us about how your group got started and 
how you got into studying the scriptures together and how you were introduced to you know kingdom teaching and understanding of the Bible. So I'll, let, I, I'll warn you ahead of time so you can think about it, and that way we know we can keep it down short and not have to go too long. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse, <clears throat> or excuse me, verse 19. Where the scriptures tell us, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth, knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold, and of silver, but also of wood and of and earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but must be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will." Now, in this epistle, of course, we're probably pretty well familiar with it in in the the overall theme, at least, that uh, Paul writing to Timothy as his convert and as one who he has discipled. And, of course, Paul, at this point, is getting very near the end of his life on this earth, and he's passing along some final words of instruction uh, to Timothy which you know, really should bring that to the forefront of our attention, to realize that you know, if we all had an opportunity to give one last word to somebody, what would we say? What would we tell that person with respect to their relationship to the Lord? What would be the most important thing? Well, we obviously don't have time to cover the entire epistle here, but Paul... You know, when you, when you think of these things that, that, that Paul gave to us in this letter to Timothy, it really should help us to understand and see the vital importance of the kinds of things that Paul preached about throughout all of his lifetime, all of his ministry, and in all of his other epistles. But in some sense here, they're congealed for us. They're, they're, they've been brought to a, um, a small, just a little tiny epistle, three chapters. And Paul's telling us here what it is to Timothy that he needs to be on the guard for, that he needs to be constantly about, always in his life. And so in verse 20, he tells us there that there's in a great house, a great house. Now, we've probably talked to that about that word great several times here. Uh, it's just it's it's the term that used to be a common phrase a few years ago, uh, at least among the young culture. Called it was everything was mega, mega this, mega that. If it was big, 
then it wasn't big, it was, or wasn't huge, wasn't large, it was mega. And that's what this Greek word is. It's mega. It means a big house. And he's distinguishing this from a small house in the sense that he's identifying for us the kinds of vessels that you're going to find in a larger house. And he says there are some of uh, wood and some of earth, but there are some of gold and some of silver. See, if you came to a lot of houses, a small house, as it were, and by the way, the word house there typically means, and most probably most often, I didn't count them, but probably most often just means a literal abiding place, a dwelling place, the literal physical house where you live. But it also encompasses larger things than that. It also encompasses those who live in the house, not just the immediate family either. In those days, it meant everyone that was in the house, servants, the children, the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, as we would say, everybody. And so in this great house that Paul is giving to us here, he's describing for us these contents, the contents of the vessels in the house. Now, of course, literally speaking, we would know that in a house there are literally vessels of gold and vessels of silver. Vessels of wood and vessels of earth or clay. And some of those vessels we hold high, much more highly in esteem than we do others. When you get the good china out, you know, you got to be careful how you handle that. That's a little different than getting paper plates or your Corelware out or whatever. You know, we don't worry too much about that. But when you handle the choice vessels, your mom always wants you to be careful. And she washes them very carefully to make sure they don't get chipped and broken and so forth. Well, he says here, in this great house, and here I believe he's referring not specifically to a physical house, but metaphorically to a house that represents all the people that would live within a house. And, of course, here, probably ultimately, he's referring to God's house. That which is made up of God's people. And so, consequently, he's just telling us that when we have a large group, a large assembly, but more specifically identified as God's house, you are going to have there people who are gold and silver and some that are wood and earth. That's what the word vessels is referring to. Matter of fact, the word vessel there is referred to, um, the wife is referred to as a husband's vessel. Because he's to hold her vessel in honor. That's her. So it can be a person. And to hold them in honor means to consider them as precious. He says some of these vessels, he says, are to honor and some to dishonor. Turn back with me to what I think is a very significant passage that will help us understand about these vessels and why they are held to dishonor in some cases and honor in others. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now again, this probably ought to be a pretty familiar passage to you here, dealing with the 
judgment seat and rewards. And in this passage in verse 12, Paul says there, Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And we see the same type of division here that Paul laid out for us in to Timothy. But what I want us to see here is this word uh, precious stones because it's the same word translated honor in 2 Timothy. And so the point being is that those which are held to be in high honor are precious. And these things here are directly connected or related to what is going to transpire at the judgment seat of Christ. When we come to the end of our life, you know, that, that, that brings our all possibilities for us to present anything to the Lord to it brings it to an end. And then one day, as a believer, we'll be called from the grave to be brought before his judgment seat, to be judged of him, to judge what kind of vessel we are. And it will be determined then whether we are a vessel of honor, whether we're precious to the Lord or not. Whether we are to be deemed as valuable as gold or silver or a precious stone, a gem. Or if we're going to be just common material, wood, hay, clay, stubble, whatever the case may be. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Therefore, every house is builded by God, or by some man, rather, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Now, Moses had a literal house, but he also had the larger house of Israel that he was responsible for. And it says that Moses was faithful to that house to speak the truth to them. Last week, we devoted a whole message to the idea of truth and how doctrine, the teaching of truth, that which is right, that which is verifiable, can be verified by facts, were to bring our life right in alignment with that truth. And live according to the truth. To live any other way is to live out of kilter with God's truth. And to some degree, it's to be living a lie. So we're to do it in truth. Moses walked in truth. He spoke the truth to his house. But then he says, Christ as a son over his own house. Moses is being a... a, um, Servant in his house typified for us, it says there, those things which were to be spoken after. It was a testimony. To what things? Well, verse 6 tells us that. Christ. But Christ, being like Moses, was a testimony of faithfulness over his house. Whose house, he says, you and I are. If, though, he says, if, if, he says, 
we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You see, the only way we can be a member of that house and be a full-fledged participant that is identified as a member belonging to that house is when we're holding the faith. And of course, to hold the faith means to hold as true teaching all that is encompassed in that word faith. You know, that, that word faith is like an umbrella and it covers what the Bible has to teach us, really. That one little phrase... Under that, we could put all that we understand the scriptures to be teaching us about our relationship with the Lord and about the purpose of his son, Jesus Christ, and why he brought him to this earth. Why he had to be a sacrifice for us. Why he had to die. Why he had to shed blood. But also why he rose again and God brought him back to life. And so when we look at that word hope, When he says we're to rejoice in that, the writer here tells us, we're to do so all the way to the end, that is, to the end of our life. To hold that faith steadfast so that if they were to write a Hebrews chapter 11 about you and I, they could put that little phrase in there that says, these all died in faith. And that's ultimately the goal and end of our life is that we might die in faith and henceforth then be found a vessel of honor, precious to the Lord. Now, if you continue uh, reading several of those verses after that, we'll just work our way through several, but he tells us there in verse 21, if a man therefore, in view of these two different kinds of people that you're going to find in that house, Now, there's two different kinds. You know, there's the gold and silver and those that are held in honor. And then there's the wood, hay, stubble, clay, earth, those in dishonor. But you'll notice that on each side, there's gold, silver, precious stones, varying degrees of honor. Over here, there's wood, hay, stubble, clay, varying degrees of dishonor. And he tells us, if a man will purge himself from these these things of dishonor. Then he says, he shall be a vessel unto honor. He can move from one side to the other. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to throw your hands up in despair and say, I cannot live this life. I'll never make it. This just simply isn't for me. I believe what you're saying, preacher, but I just, I don't see how in the world anybody can do this. But you can God has made the provision. You can do this. You can live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord, and you can be counted as a vessel of honor at his judgment seat. So he says there, if we do this, we're a vessel of honor sanctified. And we talked, I brought a message here a couple weeks ago about that word, sanctified. We're set apart. And in the scriptures, it means something that is set apart for a particular use. With respect to you and I, as Christians, we are set apart for God's use. Now, you can have sanctified things. See, you, now this is practical sanctification, but you know, if you have a person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they understand the faith, they understand 
that which is the hope that they are to rejoice in, they could be on this side over here amongst the vessels of dishonor and be sanctified. Why is that? Because they've been set apart for God's use. Problem is they're not living that way. They're not conducting their lives in a manner which represents their sanctification. Consequently, the word says, purge out. Cleanse yourself. And he says, purge himself. I first learned what the word purge meant when I got out of high school. And I see you're supposed to learn all those words in English, and I didn't. So, But I got my first job. I learned what purge meant. I worked on a humongous big printing press that was longer from that wall to that wall and actually higher than that ceiling, too. And it was big. Lots of rollers and ball bearings on it. And you had to grease them every now and then. And one of the things they trained us to do, when we had to go through the press and do all that, was to put enough grease in those bearings to purge out all the old grease. Any dust and dirt and grime that had collected in that so that you would have clean grease for that bearing. Purge it out. Well, that's what he says we're to do here in order to be counted as a vessel of honor to purge ourselves of these things. And, of course, he's going to mention some of these things in just a moment. So that you can be a a new lump. Well, it doesn't say that there, but if you'll just turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll find where he does say that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And this, as far as I know, these are the only two places in the New Testament where this word purge is used. And so I want us to see the other connection. Now, I also preached a message from this passage several weeks ago. And in this passage, we have this problem here in the Corinthian church, which they had plenty of, and that problem was sin in the church. A man knew his father's wife. And Paul is encouraging the church to take action. And he says there that in verse 7, he says, tells them, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For Christ, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And we see that he relates this whole idea of purging and leaven with the sacrifice that Christ has made. And that all goes back to, in type, the picture that the Lord painted for us at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When they were to, the Jewish families were to cleanse their houses of all leaven in preparation for that entire week. And you might remember we mentioned that that seven-day period in which they were to do that was a representation of our entire life. We are to, our entire life is to be lived free of sin, apart from sin, cleansed. And Paul, in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 5, is talking about the, the church here, purging the church from the leaven that is within its midst. But if we go back over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21, 
If a man, therefore, shall purge himself. So you see that an individual has a responsibility to purge himself from sin, to put those things away. Now, he cannot cleanse himself from sin, but he can give up sins. And you can depart from sins, but if he refuses, and if he does not do so, then it becomes the responsibility of the church to cleanse themselves from sin by purging, removing that one from the midst. And you know that the dire consequence of this entire thing is pretty, pretty heavy. Because Paul tells them there um, in verse 5, when you do so, he says, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You're doing the person a favor. <laughs> when you do that, by removing them from your midst. Now, um, now I'm going to skip over some things here. Well, maybe I better not. Let's see. No. I will. Okay. Let's go on. He tells us that we, when we do so, when we purge ourselves, we are meat for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. Now, again, simple little word here, prepared. But it's vital. It's vital when you see the connection of what the ultimate outcome of we, me, taking the responsibility for my own life and preparing myself for the things that God has in store for me as, as a believer, as a servant of the Lord, to do good works. He tells us that back in Ephesians chapter 2, we, that, you know, that we're, we're uh, to be, we've been prepared for good works. But if you turn back to Revelation chapter 19, in Revelation 19, it's an interesting use of this same word. And if you got your uh, antenna ears on, you'll probably know right where we're going. To Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. In the seventh verse there, of course, you remember... This is the, this, this chapter, this passage concerns the second coming of Christ, not the rapture, but his coming to uh, establish his rule over the earth in the millennium. And he tells us there in verse, uh, verse 7, he says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And it's to be well noted there that she made herself ready. She had the responsibility to prepare, <clears throat> prepare herself to meet her groom. Here being the church. 
it, and, and of course, the church is made up of people. It's individuals. We each have the responsibility to prepare ourselves. And when it says there, she made herself ready, it's the same word as prepared back in 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> and so the point being made here is that that which God has directed us to be prepared for, for every good work, is the same thing as making yourself ready to meet the Lord at the wedding. When the bride is to meet his or meet her groom the Lord Jesus Christ and so Paul's instructions carry a lot of weight here it's his last epistle or nearly the last one and he's writing his last words of instruction as we said to his young disciple Timothy he's just simply telling him you better be ready you better be prepared. Because if you're not prepared, how can you be a bride? How can you be a member of Christ's wedding party? How can you meet the Lord if you're unprepared to do so? Now, he's not saying go out and get saved. I mean, you know, become a Christian. That's a given here. That can't happen without you already being a Christian. But you must prepare yourself as a Christian in preparation for this event because it is going to be a big one. When Christ comes to receive his bride, wow, you think of all the things that, are, that have happened upon the earth during the tribulation period, the things that will be transpiring as the Lord institutes his government upon the earth and all the changes that are going to take place. And all the nations of this earth, they're going to bow down to him. Give homage to him as Lord of all the earth. And trust me, I want to be a part of that. I sure do. Well, if I want to, I must purge myself. Cleanse myself from all these things that will hinder me or prevent me from doing that. Now... Verse, uh, verse 22, flee also, he says, youthful lusts. And that word youthful has to do with things you teach a child. In other words, the things that you learned as a child and lusted after, you're to flee those things. Or to give them up. You know, you've heard the saying that the only difference between a man and a boy is the what? The size of his toy. They just get bigger and more expensive. But what, what you know, back First Corinthians again. First Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I reasoned or I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things, put them away. But, you know, how do we expect to grow into godly Christian maturity if we're still playing with the toys? We ought to be 
well, I want to say playing. That's not the word. I want to say playing with manly things. We don't play with them. We ought to be focusing and concentrating on the manly things, the mature things, the things that will promote godliness in our lives, the things that will lift us up to the level of honor before the Lord that makes us well-pleasing to him. In Acts chapter, well, actually, um, yeah, Acts chapter 19, or 9 rather, I think I want to go there. Um, We also noted in, in, in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, Flee youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, when you read words like that, you see, when he says, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, you can just very easily see that there are some vessels of honor within the house. And if you will call on the Lord with them who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, then you can be identified with them. You don't have to stay over here to be a vessel of dishonor. You join a significant group of people when you do that. Them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. To call on the Lord then, I like the way... Jody Dillow says it in his book. He says, to call on the Lord is the distinct privilege of a Christian. That's not for the unsaved. Consequently, when you turn to a passage like Romans chapter 10, and I want us to turn there. Romans chapter 10 He says, for there is, in verse 12, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. He says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, when you look at that verse on the surface, You'd probably bet a $100 bill that that's telling us that if we want to become a Christian, we've got to call on the Lord. And I guess I've read probably several hundred gospel tracts that will quote this verse that tells us that we need to become a Christian by calling on the Lord. I mean, it'll list you like step one, step two, step three, and it's one of the steps. And if you leave that out, you're done for. You can't do it. When this, that's not what this passage is talking about at all. And it's not the word saved here. It's not the word saved with respect to a person coming to know Jesus Christ as the Savior of all men. But rather it has to do with the salvation that will occur when the Christian meets the Lord at his judgment seat 
and then is able or provided the privilege of sharing in the Lord's future rule in his millennial kingdom. And I'm going to show you that. Go down, or see, turn to 1 Timothy. No, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. Same book we've been in. But we'll just turn over a couple chapters to chapter 4. And I want us to look at verse 18. And there, of course, now you know that in chapter 4, Paul says there in verse 6, I'm ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. We know there in the writing of 1 Timothy that Paul was near to having his life taken. And so with that in mind, look at verse 18. And he says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. But the word preserve there is the word save. And Paul, we know, was a Christian. And the point being is that Paul was simply reconfirming to his disciple Timothy in his first letter to him, That I know the Lord will preserve me or save me unto his heavenly kingdom. And back in chapter 2 of our same letter, well, actually back in, uh, um, yeah, is it chapter 2? Verse, I forget where I'm at now. Yeah, verse... uh, Verse 22, when he talks about calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, when it talks about calling upon the Lord and all those who call upon the Lord shall be saved, he is simply telling us there that all, all believers, all Christians who call upon the Lord, which is their distinct privilege to do, shall be saved. You know, we could we could write the words right in there as an addition. If we want to be translators, you know, and we want to give our interpretation of that passage, we'll be saved unto his heavenly kingdom. Just like Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Calling upon the Lord. That's our privilege. And that's what it means to be a vessel of honor. To be counted as gold or silver as a, or as a precious stone in the Lord's sight. And what we can actually become or be before him when we appear before him at his judgment seat. So consequently, he gives us some very simple words of instruction. Things that ought to be characteristic of our life if we're going to be that kind of a person. The very next verse says, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. You know, when somebody comes to try to trip you up anymore and they say, you know, like, well, where, where did uh, Cain get his wife? You don't have to fool with stuff like that. Just avoid it. It's not germane to the point of the scriptures where Cain got his wife. That's not the important thing. Don't let people pull you off on a rabbit trail 
over such things. Avoid those whole things, he says, knowing that they gender strife, they cause or create strife. But rather, he says, the servant of the Lord, and by the way, the word servant there is our familiar word for slave. The slave of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all, apt to teach, and patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Instructing those that oppose themselves. (laughs) I mean... It's one thing for two people to oppose each other. But for an individual to claim that they know Jesus Christ is their Savior and yet reject the truth of the kingdom is to oppose himself. Matter of fact, the whole whole thing there, I can't even... I mean, they've even got the phonetic pronunciation here and I still have trouble pronouncing this word. It's so long. It's anti-diate-ith-em-ahi. <laughs> now, if you could say that all fast in Greek, it'd probably make some sense. But all it means is, is to set oneself opposite and to set oneself opposite themselves. To oppose their very own self. You know, that's what it means to know the truth. And yet, if you're walking over here, <clears throat> now, I'm not saying that we never do this. I'm not saying that we never stray from the truth. But I'm talking about a person who says, I claim this knowledge of the scriptures to be the truth, but I'm walking over here. It's a hypocrite. And it's a liar. And they're opposed to themselves. You can't do it. You cannot live a life like that and expect to be called a vessel of honor before the Lord and before his judgment seat. Well, then, then he says that these who oppose themselves, we're to instruct them, teach them, if peradventure, perhaps, or haply, sometimes it's translated, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And I want us to see here, see, I want us to see that it's, it's this person who has the truth over here, And then they've chosen to walk over here. That repentance to come back to the truth comes from God. You think about that and you go back to Hebrews chapter 6. And about where the writer there says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Unless God grants it. He told them there, go on to maturity. And we will do so if God permits, if God allows it. You see how dangerous it is to stray from the truth? I didn't say stray from the truth in doctrine, because most of us, we would understand that. We know what the Bible teaches, but to, in practice in our life, get away from the truth, that has some pretty heavy consequences to it. Heavy consequences. So consequently, there, you know, he tells us there, he says to give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that's our familiar word, our epinosis, our full understanding, our complete recognition, full discernment uh, of what the truth is. 
And it takes a change of mind or repentance on the part of God that we're going to be allowed to come back to the truth. Faith. Does confession of sin on a regular basis mean anything to us? It should. Because that is how we maintain our walk before the Lord. It keeps us from straying from the truth in practice. And last verse there, another interesting phrase, I thought. This is what led me to the whole passage here to study this. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You know, on the one hand, God grants them repentance, but on the other hand, they recover themselves. That whole word, recover there, the root word comes from a word uh, to abstain from wine. This word is ana, that's the word nepho. This word is ana. Nepho. It means to come back to soberness. You're drunk. Now you come back to soberness. You strayed from the truth. Now you've come back to being a sober Christian once again. And if you wanted to run a string of verses after that, you could look up all the verses and the admonitions that Paul gives us and Peter to walk soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. So the whole, the whole matter has to do with simply instruction, teaching us why and how you have a great house, you have holy vessels, and how to be a holy servant. So that one day, when we stand before the Lord, we can do so with confidence and actually do so with rejoicing. You know, I, I constantly hear people say, you know, make comments about the return of the Lord. And they just, you know, like, man, this world's so full and troubles and blah, blah. I can hardly wait for the Lord to come. And I'm just thinking, oh, boy, if you only knew. See, if we only knew, we would straighten our life up. And we would begin to walk in accordance with what the scriptures teach us. I mean, it... It shakes me up. It straightened my life out when I came to an understanding. Now, it didn't mean, certainly didn't make me perfect. You can ask Janet. She'll tell you. By any means. But that's how we're to walk. It's to characterize our life. These kinds of things that he points out to be sober again. So we don't have to stay there. We do not have to continually be a vessel of dishonor. We can change and we can become sober. We can become a vessel of honor. And that's what the Lord desires for us. We need to be busy seeking those things that guide us and direct us to truth. The truth of his word, the truth of his message. We did a whole message again just recently on the truth 
And the, and the main thrust behind that message was to show that the truth is the same message as the word of the kingdom, the word of God, the gospel of your salvation, or any of the other many expressions that are used in the New Testament to describe that which Jesus Christ himself came to proclaim to us and give us as his final message, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, his final message to man, what we are to do, what we are to be, and what we are to expect. So I want to say to you this morning, you know, man, I just say, we can do it. God has given us everything in the book to be able to do that and to be able to walk in a manner pleasing to him. And I trust that we'll do that this week. I trust that you'll not only, you know, don't just look at the warning. Don't look at the despair and, and all the wrong things. Look at, the, look at the sides of the bright things that what God promises to do if we simply obey him. And that we can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege. We're grateful for the, the joy and the honor we have of worshiping together. To know that when we see such vital truths in your word, we know we have your spirit. Without whom we, we would not be able to understand the words we read. We would not be able to take them into our soul and absorb the, the depth of truth that is there for each one of us. Father, I pray that as we consider these things and we look upon our own lives and as we take Paul's admonition to examine ourselves as to whether we're really in the faith, that we would do so with all diligence and with all care. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And we'd like to give you an opportunity this morning. It's just going to be a very brief invitation. As, as always, you notice we have a very, very simple service here. Uh, but we want to sing a, a song, a verse of invitation, giving you an opportunity to come this morning if you so desire for uh, council, baptism, church membership, whatever the need may be.